Chayisara. Chayisara. Um, um, the, um, it's, it's hard, guys, it's hard to speak through the plastic, so. If you have difficulty hearing, then just come closer. Center. Um, so, a number of years ago, I ended up, uh, it's a story in itself for another time, but I ended up visiting Dachau. Um, it was actually uh, one of the first time, it was, um, it was only the second time I'd been to a concentration camp. Didn't really know what to expect. Um, it's very different from uh, Treblinka um, because it's set up really, it, it looks and feels like a museum. Um, because I knew I was going to be going there because of a meeting I had in Germany that I said I would only have if we got to go to Dachau, um, I had a chance to read up on it. And if you read enough stories, then the places that you see take on a whole different character. Um, when you walk into the Dachau camp, for example, um, you cross over a, a little bridge, which is about half the length of this room, and you cross over this sort of rushing river. And I had read a story about a fellow who was knocked, um, who was rifle-butted in the head by an SS guard, apparently for sport, and knocked over the bridge and fell into the river. And when I was walking across the bridge, and you look down at the river, you suddenly get what a traumatic experience that must have been. And then you, you get into the camp, and you come to a wide open area, which is basically the Umsteigplatz. It's the central sort of platz where they did all the roll calls. And you kind of close your eyes and imagine, you can't imagine, but you try to imagine what that must have been like. There were all these experiences going through the camp. But one of the things that stuck me was a picture that continues to haunt me. If you're curious, after this year, I'll, I have a little, I didn't figure out how to make a big copy, but I think I have a, I have a little copy of his picture. A fellow by the name of Martin Stiebel. <laughs> Martin Stiebel was born in 1899. He lived in Nuremberg. Okay. In 1933, he was 34 years old. He was an accountant, but he was also uh, a member of the Communist Party. Communism in those days in the Jewish world was not a dirty word. For liberals, it was almost a holy word. And he, was, uh, he had joined an organization that was proposing sort of communist ideals and the like. And because of that, and because he spoke out against uh, Adolf Hitler in the elections, uh, they found some reason to arrest him and to take him to Dachau. And you read his story, and you realize that he had no idea that he had just entered a completely different world. I read a couple stories about the way he was tortured. There's a big, big, huge, it's like the size of, I don't know, one of these plastic things here, huge hung from the ceiling of his portrait and, this, and his story. And afterwards, I looked it up on the internet. You can look it up if you want. Um, or I can send it to you. And he was beaten. He was, uh, they, they, not all of the Jews when he was arrested. Remember that after Kristallnacht, there were 30,000 Jews that were arrested and sent to Dachau. That was the first mass transfer of Jews to the concentration camps. 1933, Dachau was a new camp. It was just set up uh, by the Nazis two months after Hitler's election. And, um, and nobody knew about it. And nobody knew there was such a concept. And, and you're a Jew who's a member of the Communist Party in a country that um, has given Jews full rights, that has given Jews land rights, voting rights. This was a new thing in Europe in the, in the 20th century. 
and you just don't imagine what's waiting for you. And they immediately um, gave him special treatment. He was beaten a number of times. He was forced to lie on his back and put a toad in his mouth. Um, various other things. And he was apparently a part of a plot to try to write down a little bit of what was going on in Dachau and smuggle it out. He wrote a letter to his lawyer and tried to smuggle the letter out to this lawyer because he's a Jew in Germany. But it appears to me from what I read about him that he didn't think of himself as a German Jew. He thought of himself as a Jewish German. He was a German who happened to be Jewish. He had no idea. They found the letter, and after a severe beating, they threw him into an isolation cell. He was found hanged in his cell with his arms tied behind his back. How do you hang yourself if your arms are tied behind your back? Right? The world that they were in was so beyond their imagination, there was an SS officer who complained to his superiors that there were abuses going on in Dachau and that the rule of law was being flouted and prisoners were being executed with no recourse to legal action. He disappeared for about a year, eventually ended up on the front lines, and he was actually killed under mysterious circumstances on the Russian front. That was the world that they had entered. And I think about that Martin Stiebel. You look at his, his photo. It's, it's a short, bespectacled, well-groomed, dressed-in-a-suit accountant who has no idea that he is living in a completely different world. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because there's an idea in this week's Parsha that I think uh, resonates and relates to a topic that I actually think is fr pretty frightening that I think you can relate to or think about after what we just went through this week, right? On this uh, spiritual, social retreat, right? So, the Pasuk says, right? Some of you in one of the pods, uh, we had a kumzitz together, and I mentioned this. It's an interesting term. Avram is getting older, right? And he's babayamim, it's an interesting phrase. He's coming of days. One way of understanding that is that he appreciates each day. You know, when you're 18, you don't appreciate each day. You don't. What's the difference if you're 18 and you're 18 and a half? I was talking to my dad recently. My dad is 85 years old. He's going to be 86 in December. He appreciates each day. He wakes up in the morning and he has a moda ani moment. Baruch Hashem, They're both healthy. You know, they're happy. They have healthy children and so on and so forth. He appreciates it. And Hashem blessed Avram with everything. Now this is interesting. So Avram is blessed with everything. Can anybody tell me what the problem with that Pasuk is here at the beginning of Chayasar? And it's not the exact meaning. Yeah, Abi. He just lost his wife. Excellent. He just lost his wife. And he didn't just lose a wife. He lost Sarah, who was the love of his life. In fact, the Pasuk says, we don't find this elsewhere, the Pasuk says, He mourns her. He cries for her. He's in pain. The beginning of this Parsha is all about, you know, sort of buying or whatever. At a certain point in this Parsha, acquiring a burial place for Sarah. He wants to be sure that, that she's honored in death, that she's buried properly. I could just say here, Avram zaken Hashem berachet Avram bakol. Right? And you think about everything that Avram's been through. 
I mean, you know, he lost Lot. He has Yitzchak. Almost lost Yitzchak. What exactly is this Pusik doing here? Rashi, by the way, interestingly enough, and I know Rashi says very unlike Rashi. Very unlike Rashi. Rashi here does not bring pshat. Hashem berechet Avram bakol, bakol ole begematria ben. The word bakol, bet kaf lamed. And if you take the numeric equivalent, right? Lamed is 30, kaf is 20, bet is 2, 52. And that says Rashi, right? Is the same gematria, is the same numeric equivalent as the word ben. Hashem berechet Avram bakol, Avram has a son. And because he has a son, he has everything. And now that he has a son, he has to marry him off. Well, if you have everything, you don't need to do anything. So the fact that Avram needs to do something means that something's missing. And if something's missing, then he doesn't have everything. Right? I want a world of peace, so I don't have everything. Certainly, I don't have everything I want. You know? My, 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 you know, I don't know. My younger son's in the army. I'm happy that he's in the army. I'm happy for him that he's doing well. I can't wait till he's done. Right? You know, I have a daughter who's not married yet. I want her to be married. So you can't say that I'm blessed with everything. So, of course, the problem with that is, is anybody ever blessed with everything? Like, if you could be blessed with everything, then that would mean that you don't think there's anything missing. How could you ever think there's nothing missing? There are people in the world who are dying. There are people who are sick. There are things that aren't perfect. We live in a world of corona, right? You know, it's like when uh, somebody comes to you and says, how, how are things? You say, things, things are great, right? And the guy who's asking you the question, his grandfather's really ill. And then you suddenly realize his grandfather's really ill, so you feel bad. You're like, well, you know, I know it's not so great. So what does it mean, Vashem Berachat Avram Bakol? Why is that? And why, by the way, is this here? If Hashem is blessing Avram with everything because Avram has a son, where would I expect to find that line? When he gets a son. Pardon? When he gets a son, which is last week. Right? Maybe because it's after the Akedah, he has a son, he's going to lose a son, but Avram never believes he's going to lose a son. That's the whole point of his being Avram. So what does this mean? And what is this doing here? Right? So, I'm reminding you of a discussion that we had in one of the shiurim, I believe in the tefillah shiur, but in order to put this into context, what do we have to do? We have to define our terms. There are actually two terms here that we have to define. One of them we're going to get to, which is bakol, like everything, right? Where do I find bakol and benching? Bakol mi kol kol, right? That's a pretty important word, right? Um, but before that, we have to find define a different word, which is Berach bracha. Now, some of us talked about this, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, what is a bracha? Now, if you ask the average person what a bracha is, you know what he'll say? Okay, he'll say bless. But then you ask him what is... That's like, <laughs> that's like what's avan? He says love. Okay, but what is love, right? So you ask him what a bracha is, he says it's a blessing. You ask him what a blessing is, what are you doing when you, when you eat an apple and you make a bracha? He'll say you're saying thank you. That's what most people will say. And most people would be wrong. Because the word for bracha, the word for thank you, is not bracha. We have a word for thank you. Toda. We have brachot that are all about thank you. No delacha, modi manachnulach. We start the day with modi ani. It's not a bracha, but whatever. So what does it mean, levarech? So you will remember that I told you this. Um, but this is this week's parsha, So it's worth re-mentioning. Um, 
Livarech is not so complicated, right? Hashem Berach at Avram Bakol is, is actually setting the theme for this parsha. Right? Hashem will increase Avraham's progeny. He will have more children. How does Avram, by the way, this is an interesting story that I heard this week from Yuval. I don't know if he told you the story. Yuval, in, right, we were just in Kibbutz Keturah. This is an interesting story. Um, well, first of all, so, so where do I find that Avram's progeny is increased? Yeah? He remarries Keturah. Who, by the way, is Keturah according to the Medrash? Hagar, which is very interesting. If you look in the Pesukim, it says, Vayavo Yitzchak. Yitzchak comes. Remember when Yitzchak comes, like, at next week's Parsha, and Rivka finds him? Or, or sorry, no, this is Parsha also. Yitzchak comes, and he goes to the field, right? Vayetz Yitzchak lasuach basadeh, Davin's mincha, whatever's going on there. And who comes along and sees him in the field? Rivka, right? So the Mepharshim ask, where does Yitzchak come from? Anybody know where he comes from? Rashi quotes it there. He comes from a place called, anybody? Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Now what is Be'er Lachai Ro'i? That's a very... That is where Hagar is taken and almost watches her son dies. And according to one day, that's where she comes from. Right? Hagar, I don't know if you know this. Hagar leaves Avraham. It says, Vatelech Vateta. Right? She goes on a journey and she gets lost. Right? Does anybody know what Rashi says there where it says Hagar gets lost? Anybody? She goes straight back to idolatry. She goes straight back to idolatry. Where does, where, does, where does Rashi get that from? What does that mean she goes back to idolatry? How does Rashi know that? Want to hear deep thought? You ready for deep? This is deep. Are you ready for deep? This is deep. Hagar gets lost. She must have gone back to Avodah Zarah. Baal Shem Tov says, you know why? Because if she thinks that she's lost, then she doesn't realize that Hashem sent her there. A Jew is never lost. A Jew is sent. You're never stuck. You're sent. You have to figure out why you're sent there. The fact that a guy thinks she's lost means she's distanced from Hashem. So she must have gone back to Avodah Zarah. Right? Now, that's one opinion. The flip side is she goes back to her home and she's waiting. Who's she waiting for? So Yitzchak goes back to Be'er Lachai Rui in this parsha to get Hagar. But he waits until Sarah, once his mother has passed, then he realizes his father needs to be with someone. So he goes to get Hagar and brings Hagar back to Avram, according to the Medrash. So Avram is busy getting, busy getting Yitzchak married, and Yitzchak is busy getting Avram married. Deep. Right? Because, because Avram needs to be... Why does Avram need to be married? Because he's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's got more work to do. So he marries Agar, Keturah, and he has many more children. Right? You can look at the end of the Parsha. Right? He has 12 more children. Right? Whatever's going on there. Okay? So Hashem increases Avram's progeny. Okay? He also increases Avram's wealth. Avram becomes very wealthy. Levarech is to increase. Okay? In fact, the other, another excellent source for the fact that Bracha is to increase is when Eliezer, well, we don't know that he's Eliezer, we know him as the Eved, but, um, but the Menders tells us that he's Eliezer. Eliezer goes down to find a wife, right, to find who will eventually be Rivka. Why, does he, why is he sure that, that when he finds the right girl, she's going to come back with him? Or rather, her father will let her go back with him? What does he do? It's like having children after Parshish here. You're more likely to come to Parshish if there's children, right? Yeah? He bribes her. He bribes her. How does he bribe? He actually doesn't bribe her. He bribes her, her family. 
He goes down with all this wealth on the camels. How many camels does he have? Ten camels. He has ten camels. Now he gets to the well, he's got ten camels. What does he have to do before he can get off and talk to whoever it is? He's got to park the camels. There is actually a word in this week's parsha for parking your camel. Vayavrech etagmalim. Same word. Bracha. Levarech. To increase. I never really understood why that was the word for camel until I was in the army. And it's a longer story, but uh, we were at an oasis, and I let all the guys go swimming, and I was kind of manning the jeep and sitting on the radio. Um, there were a couple of reasons why I couldn't go swimming. Um, and, and this uh, Bedouin shows up with a few camels, and a kid gets off. First of all, he, they, 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 they had this, um, it was like this stone trough. It was almost the size of one of these tables, huge. And they had this, like, there was like a pipe there with water that took water from the, from the, from the, the oasis, from the Mayan, the, the spring. And this kid brought these two camels up to the trough, and he flipped the switch, he pulled back a lever on the pipe so the water could come out of the Mayan into this trough, filled up this trough. I don't know, it must have been 100 gallons in there. It took like a couple minutes for it to fill up. And then he closes the pipe, and then he leaves like he's doing whatever he's doing, and the camels are drinking. And I watched these two camels drink for at least 20 minutes. They just didn't, they drank down this, it was unbelievable. They drank down this whole trowel. It looked to me like 100 gallons of water. It was unbelievable. Then I understood the whole hump and the camel and the water with the desert and whatever. But the other thing I saw there, which fascinated me, was this kid, when he jumped off the camel, he had a little stick, and he went over to each camel, and he hit the camel on the back of the knee, the berach, right? He hit the camel on the back of the knee, and I guess there's some kind of reflex that a camel has. When you hit it on the back of the knee, it bends its knee. Bends one knee, all the knees bend. It sits down and spreads out. It's actually interesting how much more room a camel takes up than when it's standing with those little feet. It spreads out. It increases its space. Bracha is to increase. Now, what am I increasing when I make a bracha, right? This is just a cup of coffee, right? When I make a bracha on this, this becomes a vehicle to increase the presence of Hashem in my life. Levarech is to increase. When I take a moment to make a bracha, right? if you bless a friend, what that really means is that you realize that this friend is a vehicle for increasing the presence of Hashem in your life. Because Hashem brought you to this friend. You know, you give a bracha to your children on Friday night. Hashem should bless you all, get it? One day, to have this experience, to find the right girl, to have wonderful children... There are a few moments in life that compare with giving a bracha to your child. There's a Hasidic custom when you give a bracha to your children before you actually say, you know, Yivarech Hashem Vishmarech and give the traditional Birchas Karnin, the priestly blessing, you take a moment, right? Mayan, Shifra, Bat Benjamin, Moshe, Vedorit, Batyan, you take a moment to appreciate, like, who is this child and all this child brought to you and all the gifts in your life because of this child and what a blessing it is, right? It increases the presence of Hashem in your life. You can, you can tool an experience to increase your relationship with Hashem. That's what a bracha is. So what does it mean, Vashem Beirach et Avram Bakol? It means that Avram chose to be in a state of increase. Avram could have looked at the world as lacking because Sarah's gone. There's something missing in his life. He's got to raise his son now on his own. He's got to find a wife for his son. It's hard to imagine anyone more important to you when you're looking for the right person for your child than your wife. And she's gone. 
But Avram chooses to see the world as having any, everything in it. Kol is not a mathematical equation. Kol is an existential reality. Kol is a decision. Do I have everything I need? Make a bracha in the morning, she'asali kol tzarki, that Hashem gave me everything I need. Right? The average person your age could not imagine being without a cell phone for four days. And you discovered that you can do without a cell phone for four days, and you really don't need it as much as you thought you did. And some of you, libriot, right? Somebody needs a tissue. There you go, right? Okay? So need and want are two very different things. Bakal, to know that you have everything you need, is really a statement of emunah. It's a belief that whatever you've been given in a given moment is exactly what you need. And if there's something you don't have in a given moment, it's because right now in this moment, you don't need it. So how could it say that Hashem berachet Avram Bakol, that Hashem blesses Avram with everything? Because in that moment, Avram has everything he needs. The fact that there's something that he wants to give or find doesn't mean he doesn't have what he needs now. That's something that's necessary for the future. It's not about now. And he does what he's supposed to do. In fact, Avram doesn't have to go to Padanara. He's doing his ishtablus. He's doing his bit. He has to send his servant to go. After that, it's in Akash Baruch hands. Whether Hashem will decide to find a wife for Yitzchak or not, and if you look at the Pesukim, and I'll spare you, it's clear that if you find a girl from there, bring her back. But if you don't, right, not interested in a Canaanite, not interested in a Chitite, if you can't find what we're looking for, which is a pretty specific ask, then I guess Hashem doesn't want you to find that girl right now. In fact, if you look at how Eliezer, if it's Eliezer, how he actually goes about finding this girl, the odds of his finding her are absurd. Right? He wants to find a girl, if you will send me a girl who has the same level of chesed of Yitzhak. If you, if you send me a girl who not only offers to give me water, but offers to give water to all my camels, then that'll be the girl. Do you know what it is to offer, to, 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 to bring water for a camel? Right? I mean, it's very clear that they're at a be'er. It's not the same as a mayan. Right? Anybody here actually been to a well? You know how you get water out of a well? Right? You have to lower the bucket and you have to pull it up. It's a lot of work. And based on what I saw from what one camel drinks, pulling up enough water for 10 camels is an enormous amount of work. Right? It's like if I come into the Bismarck and there's a boy there and he sees that I'm carrying two things and he offers to carry it, so then all oh, that'll tell me he's a solid citizen. But if I see a boy who comes and not only offers to carry it, but says that he'll go to my car and wash my car, like, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's almost like Avram is saying, let's see what Hashem wants. How can a person have that attitude? Because he knows that whatever he needs, he already has. Because if you're in this moment, whatever you have is all you need. That's a decision. That's not a reality. That's a decision. And I want to just add one more thing because you're just coming off this retreat. I just, uh, my, my, uh, my kids did an interesting experiment. You know, um, our eldest grandchild, my, my eldest daughter is married, Baruch Hashem, and they have three children, and the eldest is six. He was born on Zion Adar, so he's named Amitai, Emet, Moshe, whatever. And um, he's a very bright kid. And because he's a very bright kid, and because he lives in Israel, and because he lives in Efrat, so he's very independent, right? My daughter at five years old, we could send her to the grocery store for milk. Most people don't do that in America. But you know, it's a closed community, pretty safe, Baruch Hashem. 
But because of that, he'll go visit his friends and he'll do all sorts of things. And they wanted to know where he is. Because, you know, you get home from work, you want to, where's your six-year-old? So what's the easiest thing to do if you want to be sure you know where your kid is all the time? Get him a, a phone. But obviously getting him a cell phone has a lot of challenges, right? Because you don't want your kid using a cell phone at age six. Right? We'll talk about that in a second. So they came up with a fascinating idea, which I thought was brilliant. Um, they found a company that makes a phone which is a watch. Okay? It doesn't surf the internet, but it can receive and make calls, and it has GPS. Right? So that gives them two things. The first thing is he's got six, ten numbers speed dialed, including mine. His mom, his dad, you know, his best friend, uh, family, whatever, all four of his grandparents, and so on and so forth. So if he needs something or he's stuck somewhere, he can call. If he gets home and it's locked and he can't figure out whatever, right? And they can call him whenever they want to. And uh, the school hasn't figured out that he has a phone on his wrist, so nobody's done anything about the fact that he has a phone on his wrist. And he can't surf. There's no web, there's no screen to, to see movies or anything like that. So it's a phone. And they've got a program on their phone, from what I understand, an app that allows them to track where he is. So they know where he is. You know, they won't have to get into that uncomfortable conversation when he's a teenager because he'll be used to the fact they know where he is from age six. I think it's brilliant. We'll see if it lasts, right? Now, why is this such a valuable thing to do? So my son-in-law recommended, he said, you know, you should watch this. This He knows I like documentaries. Um, called, want to take a guess? The Social Dilemma. So I've been wanting to watch this for a while, and I just haven't gotten around to it. So the last couple of days, I had a little time. So I finished watching it today. I like to watch things like that in, in Prakim. I don't you watch it in any minutes. You forget half of it. So I watched like 20 minutes and whatever. Fascinating. Actually, terrifying. It, it's a terrifying... I don't know. Who here has not seen this? The Social Dilemma. Okay, so you didn't expect that I was going to come and recommend that you watch something um, on your phone. Um, I know. So maybe there's a better way to do it. And if, By the way, if you want, I'm happy to run a movie night on this. But... Um, but I think it's worth watching. I do, especially for your generation. I'm not sure if it's for me, but for you for sure. Basically, it interviews, um, I think it's well done. It's a documentary. It interviews some of the top professionals in the field of social media. Uh, one of them is one of the people who invented the like. He, he co-created the like for Facebook, right? Um, people from the hierarchy, vice presidents of Twitter and Google and all of these executives and uh, interviews them about the dangers that are going on with social media, okay? And one of the lines that stuck with me is that most people, people are starting to become aware that they're mining data, right? And people are nervous that they're taking our data, right? And that the product of social media is the data that they're mining from us. But one of them makes the point, people don't understand. The product is not the data. We are the product. They have created algorithms that are constantly figuring out what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we look at, how long we look at it, what we buy, what we don't buy, what we ignore, what we're interested in. And these algorithms, millions of algorithms, right, um, being run by, by trillions of, of, of bytes on computers, are analyzing everything we do and feeding us what we want according to their algorithms. Now, there are a number of problems with this. One of the problems with this is, therefore, you end up getting... I read an article in the paper a couple of years ago um, that people, that what you read, this was actually an analysis of newspapers, that what you read in the newspapers, right, 
um, is generally 83% supportive of what you believe, which I started to realize is really true. Like when I pick up, I don't know, the Jerusalem Post. So Jerusalem Post tries to be balanced. I don't know if they always succeed, but they try. So there's like a couple of columnists that I know are more right-wing and a couple of columnists that are more left-wing, right? There's one fellow you can count on no matter what he writes about. He's either going to bash Trump or bash Bibi, right? It gets old, you know? There's a columnist there who's constantly talking about the two-state solution and how we have to talk to the Palestinians and sort of ignoring facts, in my opinion. And after a while, I stopped reading it, right? You just stop reading it. But on the other hand, you know, someone who writes opinions that support my opinion, so that's really interesting. So that's what you read. And what you don't realize you're doing is that you're constantly buttressing your opinion and you're losing the ability to understand someone else's, right? But what the algorithms on social media do is much more frightening. They're feeding you the information that they know you want to read. And they're selling that feed to a company to then advertise, right? So, for example, if they know that I believe in a conspiracy theory because I once spent, you know, 20 seconds reading it, then they'll feed me more on conspiracy theories. And after a while, I start getting more and more um, conspiracy theories that I actually start to believe whatever it is I'm reading, right? How do you know the difference between right news and fake news, right? Now, what's scary about this is it calls into the question, what is the reality that we really see? Like, are we really in reality? Or does everyone have a different reality? How do you decide what reality you want to be in, right? And by the way, some of the byproducts of this are terrifying. You know, just as an example, um, Generation Z, which is the generation of kids that are born after 1996. What, what, what year were you guys born in? 2000. So you are Generation Zers, right? So your generation is the first group of people. Let me ask you a question. Who here had a phone by the time he was in 10th grade? Raise your hand. Okay. Did you have a phone? But Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Okay. Right. Is there anybody who didn't have a phone by, by, by 10th grade? I mean, like, what part of 10th grade? Okay. So you got a phone in 10th grade. So everybody here had a phone by 10th grade. Who here had a phone in 8th grade? Raise your hand if you had a phone in 8th grade. Wow. An iPhone or? Any phone. A phone. A cell phone. Right? Who had a phone in 7th grade? Right? Your generation... Is the first you put your hands down? Your generation is the first generation that actually started getting phones, social media, and the like in middle school. So they started to note that up until 2010, 2011, right, the rates of um, uh, uh, self-inflicted harm that required hospitalization for teenagers maintained more or less steady based on population. After 2010, 2011, it began to skyrocket. Amongst teens, it went up on an average of 73%. Okay? 73%. Pre-teens, pre-teens, which is mind-boggling, 10, 11-year-olds, it went up by 178%. Unbelievable numbers. Suicide. The suicide rate amongst teenagers has skyrocketed. And amongst pre-teens, again, percentage-wise, to relative to what it was before 2010, it, 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 it's tripled. It's unbelievable, right? So the impact of, of what we're seeing, the anxiety that this causes, you know, the fact that people are seeing a reality that, that, that creates sort of their identity based on how they think other people see them as opposed to what they really see. We get to decide what is the reality that is, that is our reality.
right? And because technology is advancing at such a, at such an exponential rate, like up until your age, like when I was a kid, you know, I'll give you an example. So some people think that this is just, um, you know, the newest new thing, and we'll adapt. I mean, when I was a kid, so we had one television set. It was black and white. And most of the shows that we watched, the set was a constant set. You know, there was still a lot left to the imagination. Anybody here ever see All in the Family? No? No? Really? Oh, you got to watch a hysterical show. Right? Or The Honeymooners? Do you know what The Honeymooners is? No? Yeah, right? So these shows were black and white, and they were basically in a set in a living room or in a police station, and the set didn't change, right? So it was all about the lines and the dialogue, and you had to imagine a lot of what they were talking about. Today, that's not true. Right today, television is and movies are. They're, they're, right, look at the beginning of a movie. Really interesting. In my day, do you know how a movie began? Want to take a guess? How did a movie begin? They just showed text. They just ran the credits. Clint Eastwood starring this one, starring that one. There was like music, and just black screen with text. Today, no way. Today, you've got to have a scene, and the scene's got to flip every second or two to keep your attention because you're the flipping generation. Take a look. Right? He's driving along, and they'll show the car, and then they'll show the palm trees, and then they'll show the sunset, and then they'll show the city view. It doesn't stay on one scene. It teaches you that you can't stay on one scene for more than a second. Which, by the way, when you get to Shear, is exactly part of the challenge. You're not used to focusing on one thing for an extended period of time. The attention span of a person who was 15 years old, when I was 15, anybody want to know? Anybody I guess? 23 minutes. Right? The, attempt, the average attention span, after 23 minutes, you would start to lose people. 23 minutes, that's what it was. Okay, you know what it is today? Three minutes. It's three minutes. After three minutes, you start to lose someone. When I give a shear, I see this. Do you ever notice sometimes I'll stand up and then I'll sit down? It's very difficult in COVID because you can't move around as much. So all the things that I do when I teach that I can't do, right? Whatever they are. It's very hard to keep people's attention, Right? You're living in a generation that has created a different reality, right? Let me ask you a question. Okay, so you went four days without your phones, which, by the way, um, we did not expect. Um, I don't know how exactly it transpired when Rev. Judah was talking to you and you all decided. Very impressive. That's just my opinion. Um, I'm curious what you felt about it. Like, what did you think was different these last four days because you didn't have your phones? Yeah? Like, Short sentences, one sentence. Okay. I well, when we're having conversations with people, people can't look things up, which is kind of an interesting thing. Oh, that's interesting. Then, two, I just want to say, like, in the moment. Wait, one sentence. Hang on. Next. Yeah. People are always down to do things. People are always down to do things. Next. Anything else? Yeah. People were had uncomfortable pauses where they realized that they couldn't just reach for the phone and go into that like environment. You have this pause, right? You, you can't kind of pull your phone out. And you're sitting at the table, so what do you have to do, yeah? Sometimes it was brutal, sometimes it was great. What was brutal? That's interesting. Like the bus rides, like, I felt like it was like super hard, especially today. The bus ride was like super long. Like, so what did you do on the super long bus ride? What? What did you do? Not, I'm saying like, like you can make some conversations. You can't, there's only so many things you can talk about with the five people around you though, for like six hours. Interesting, yeah? <laughs> yeah? 
Oh, is that interesting? I love that. You had to listen really carefully to announcements because you can't look at the text. You have to listen, yeah? Most of the day, don't really notice that you don't have your phone. So maybe it's like something that's just kind of like, it brings, it's not like not having your phone brings you up, but having your phone kind of brings you down a little bit. Oh, interesting. You don't notice most of the time during the day that you don't have your phone. That's interesting, yeah? I really had no clue what time it was the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> you had no clue. Yeah. How many of you have a watch on? I'm just curious. Wow. Guys, I, I, I'm I'm torn about this. By the way, like that you don't have that you don't know what time it is. I'm torn about this. On the one hand, you know there were uh, there 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 were Hasidim who were knowing not to wear a watch on Shabbos. Now there is a halachic side. You might be somewhere where you you know have to carry it. There was a, a debate as to whether or not there's an iser because of metake, because you might want to fix the watch, whatever. But but many people don't wear a watch on Shabbos because they don't want to be stuck in like what time is it and where do I have to go. On the other hand, if you're wearing a watch so that you don't have to be reliant on your phone, there is something to that. It's something to think about. Yeah. It was weird to get back to your bed and not reach for your phone. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you slept better because you didn't have your phones? Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Totally. No. Huh. Interesting. Yeah? I feel like I had less competition for, like, Jewish people. Like, like, they want to spend time with me because they never have their phone. I had to compute their phone. Oh, that's interesting. There's no competition. You're in the moment. Yeah. Eitan. I started reading a lot more. You started reading more? Cool. Okay. Yeah? Pardon? Because everybody was talking to each other? Cool. Okay. Yeah? It uh, made the second days a lot more Shh, can't hear. It made the second days a lot more meaningful because we had already been kind of disconnected for a while and thinking about things. Oh, that's interesting. You were thinking already. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah? Not having music was hard. Wow. We did have some music at night, though, right? <laughs> okay. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. Pardon? That's true. That I hear. That I hear. If we're running, it's hard not to without music. Pardon? I ran with Oven, and I actually really enjoyed not having music because there was something that was. You enjoyed not having music when you ran. There was something really nice about like the silence and just like looking at the landscape as I was running. Like you know, we had a rule in my car. Whenever we would go on a trip, whenever we were going on a trip with the kids, when they got to like high school age and they already started to have phones, um, the deal was, you can't, You know, they always wanted to, you know, there were cars that were coming out with like, you know, the, the, the video in the car. And then there was like the iPad. Our deal was when we went on a trip, nobody watched movies. You're like driving through Israel. See where you are. See the country. See nation. When I was driving down to the retreat on, on, what was it, Monday, it was awesome. There were like two or three hours. Now, I had some calls that I had to make for work, whatever, but if, uh, I got to a long stretch where I had no connectivity, and I just I just opened the windows and enjoyed the negative. It was unbelievable. Right? We, we forget, yeah? Um, because I knew I could take pictures of things that I liked or appreciated, I spent more time like, like in the moment, like, Right, interesting, right? We're so used to being able to capture the moment and making the memory, we're not actually experiencing the memory as much. Yeah? Okay, cool, yeah? I thought it made the bus ride infinitely more fun. 
You've already made the bus more fun because you could talk to each other. So I want to I want to suggest I want to suggest something to you because you made up a song on the bus. All right, let's finish the discussion and then you'll tell me what song is. I'm interested. Um, um, I'll tell you something interesting. I'll tell you something interesting. You know that um, one of my you want to say something? You know that one of my Guys, shh. by the way, I bet it was good for your arms. It helped you heal because you, you rested your arm. Um, never mind, Rabbi joke. Um, it's interesting to me. You know, you know, one of my favorite um, principles that I believe the Rambam is all about is, and I realized sort of watching this. I'm, I'm, this is one of those rare experiences where I watch something on whatever television, movie, whatever you want to call it, Netflix, and I'm going to watch it again. I, I really want to think about this. And I'm looking forward to, uh, my wife watched it, and I'm looking forward, we decided we're going to talk about it on Shabbos at the table, it's a fascinating discussion. But the interesting thing is, one of the things that they do to us, this, this social algorithm, this social media, is they've taken us off balance. You know, you look at what, one of the people at the end says, what are you most afraid of? And one of these guys, I forget which one, he says, civil war. Now, if I would have heard that five years ago, I would think this guy is like one of those Looney Tunes. You know, he's, he's the nutcase, you know, running away from the government, the conspiracy theorist. But after what's been going on in America, when I put two and two together, it's starting to make more sense to me. Why is America so polarized? Right? You either are all for Trump or all for Biden. And if you're, if, at least that's... What it seems to me from what I'm reading, you know, because I also read the papers, right? But, but somebody sent me a, uh, an email, crazy conspiracy theory email about, you know, whether the Democrats planned all this and they've set it up and there are all these voting irregularities and it was Trump's plan to get it to the court and all this crazy stuff. I have no idea. I realized, shh, I'm reading this and... and and, and he sends, and this is a really rational, intellectual thinking person, right? And I, I realize as I'm reading it, you know, he says to me, what if this is right? And you realize as you're reading this, you know what? I have no way of knowing what's right and what's not right. How do you know what's news, what's fake news, what's real, and what's true? And if you can't figure out what truth is, like we have an advantage, right? We have an advantage. We may have made this up to solve this problem, but we do have an advantage. We have an objective truth that we believe is true. But if you don't have an objective truth, if you can't agree on what the truth is, how do you ever come to terms? That's pretty scary. We've become, we've become, we've become polarized. Right? I view the world through Jewish, I don't know, I think it's centrist, you might call it right-wing lenses, how can I possibly really understand the Arab mindset when I'm not reading or getting information? Because they're watching on social media what I read, and they're feeding me more of it. When was the last time I got an article in social media written by, uh, I don't know, Khaled Abu Tuame, who's an, an Arab writer? He's great. He is great, right? But, but when was the last time I, I got something in a social feed? So I'm not, I'm not being given both perspectives. So what do you do about this? So I want to suggest three things. I want to suggest three things, but but I do think that one of one of the things that comes out of this, it's interesting that it says that Avram the Hashem berachta Avram Bakol, that Avram is blessed by Hashem. What does it mean? He's blessed by Hashem. It means only when he has that relationship with Hashem. 
when he can see a certain truth. Hashem is the source of balance. Is he able to be in the moment and to see what's real? That, that's what it seems to be saying. So how do you fix this? How do you stop it? So I want to say a couple things. First of all, it's interesting. Um, you know, I'm putting aside the whole question of these big companies. I don't, I, I mean, the, 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 this documentary suggests, and I don't know, but I'd like to believe that the people who created these algorithms, they didn't intend to do this. I mean, they were, you know, it's, it's legitimate for a business to want to make a profit. And in order for a business to be successful, it has to be profitable. And they just followed that profit module and business plan and it got carried away. But a lot of them are starting to realize they've created something scary and they're not sure how to undo it. So the first stage, right? So therefore, we have to try, how do you get back to a healthy reality? To being able to use your phone and there's a lot of good that comes out of the phone, you know, when I need to look up a shear or a quote or a pasuk or, or even, you know, hear some beautiful music. I can, I can be driving down to the Negev and just put Vivaldi in my Spotify and I can listen to the Four Seasons. In the old days, I had to pull over, get a DVD, right? There's a lot of things I can do. I can put Keturah in the... You have no idea what it was like to drive 20 years ago. I had to get the directions. I would write them down on an index card so that I could look at them. But if I didn't have that, I'd have a map, I'd pull over, I'd look at the map, I'd make a yellow line. Now I just put it in there and it's done. The whole thing, I don't have to think about it. So I'm not saying there isn't a lot of good that comes out of this. But, but how do I get back to finding the bad? Getting back to the way it's supposed to be is another word for tshuva. How do we do tshuva? How do we get back? What's the first stage in tshuva? The first stage is hakarat achet. Do we recognize that there's a problem? So this is something worth thinking about. And shh, just give me two more minutes. And I don't think Hakarata hate recognizing that there's a mistake going on here. It's just about recognizing that, that, I mean, I'm not on Facebook. And I was actually debating whether that's good because you can follow alumni more. And now I'm quite happy I'm not on Facebook, not on Twitter. But I, because I'm on the internet. Um, it's not just about recognizing that Facebook is doing things that are unhealthy. It's also about what am I doing as an individual? What are my mistakes? How can I fix that? I'll give you an example. I, I um, when, when my daughter introduced me to Spotify, I didn't know what it was. It's amazing, right? You put on a Shlomo Kalbach tune in, um, in, uh, in Elul, and then I realized I can create a list called Elul songs, and the next thing, all these songs are coming in. Unbelievable. Everything from Yishai Rebo to Mordechai Ben David, it's unbelievable, right? David Weimer. David Weimer, he came up, yes, he's, yeah, he's there, right? In fact, you know, he wrote, I'm pretty sure he wrote, I think he wrote, did he write Baruch, Baruch, well, okay, Nusha. He didn't write that? Oh, okay. Anyway, I think of that as him because he taught it to us in a Hanukkah. But anyway, anyway, so, so, you know, that's great. But but while I'm listening to Spotify, I discovered that it messes up the song every time you get a notification. So I learned how to turn off all the notifications. So I turned off all my notifications, and then I discovered that it wasn't just healthy when you're listening to a song, it's just healthy in general. So one of the things you can do, turn off your you don't need to know. I, listen, I was a company commander for four and a half years, or whatever, I was in the Army for four and a half years, I was a commander in Miluim for... 25 years, I have four children, I have uh, three of them that have gone through the army, I have never gotten a message that was so urgent, actually once in the last 40 years, once did I get a message that was so urgent that I needed to know right then. 
right? And that was uh, Matzah Kipper. There was a firefight, and I was the command center. We had to go. That the only time in forty years, including all my army experience. So you don't really need. By the way, whenever I see a guy gets a message and walks out in the middle of Mincha, I know there's something wrong. There's no way you're getting a message that's so important that you can't wait till the end of Mincha. That's my opinion. You could debate that with me. Turn off your notifications. That way you get to choose when you look at it instead of being drawn to someone else telling you you should look at it. That's the first thing you can do, right? The second thing you could do is, is create a time budget. Like, I, I don't, I, I, you know, if you think you're an extreme, maybe you need to go to another extreme. But let's say you don't think you're an extreme. You could certainly do better with balance. Create a time budget. We're going to learn in the Rambam, have a Adam the person supposed to constantly assess his midot, where he's at. Start to pay attention. How much time... It, by the way, this is easy because your phone does this for you. Right? You know that better than I do. How much time am I actually spending on my phone? How much time am I spending on... I don't know. WhatsApp? How much time are you spending on... What do you call it? Twitter. Right? Decide how much time you want to spend and discover that you can spend less time. And I'll give you a third tool that helped me a lot. Whenever I do something that I think might be addictive and that I might not want to stop when I should stop, what's the best way to make sure you're going to stop? Plan it, plan it before something you have to stop for, right? There's a particular relative that I call, right? She's older, and I know she goes on and on. And it's very hard to get off the phone. And I don't have an hour and a half to sit with this lady on the phone, but it's a mitzvah. So I always call her when I have to be somewhere. I don't want to pretend that's sheker. I don't want to do that. So I call her like half an hour before a class or half an hour before Shabbos, whatever it is. And then I know I have to get off. And then I realize you can do that with anything. If I don't want to watch an hour and a half of this, uh, what's it called, the social dilemma, so I'll watch it when I know I have to do something else 20 minutes later. Plan to use those addictive things when you're going to have to get off, right? So that's part of the question here is how do I come back to seeing, because you just experienced four days of a healthier reality. Now, I don't think the answer, nor do I think it's realistic, is to throw our phones in the toilet. I don't think it's realistic to imagine you could do it, but I want you to know, um, you know, having a phone without all this stuff, or Blau doesn't have that stuff on his phone, right? So you can do that, and there are values to it, and I understand it's challenging, but at least you gain something here. You've got to pause. You know, it's like a person who's trying to lose weight, and after Yom Kippur, you just, you just had a day without eating. Don't dive right in and have four burgers, right? Think about how to create your own reality. Think about how to live in a world of bracha, of your choosing, rather than of someone else's making. A little food for thought on Parashat Chayi